today is a special occasion. I didn't. I never even announced this, but it's always a special occasion when we participate together in an intimate gathering like this with the communion service, the Eucharist, our opportunity to dramatize through an enactment our gratitude for eternal life and our expectation of his coming again and, of course, the rounding up of all things in Christ, which is the theme for sure, Steve, you were correct. And as we approach this, I'm asking one question today, and it really does round up a lot of our Romans epistle. What is life? Life quits it. What is it? But in my title, I will put it, what is, parenthesis, close parenthesis, eternal life? And, of course, our main verse for that is Romans 6.23. But this really fans out throughout all of Romans. The rest of my messages in this Operation Delta, the fourth part of our Romans, the epistle series, is going to be homing in on the heart and center of Romans, which is 8.32, 8.31 and 32. God is for us is the central declaration. And for us all is the central declaration, Eight. 31 and 32. So we've discovered that at the heart of Romans, the epistle, there is a lamb. Even as at the heart of Revelation, which we studied for a couple of years, there is a lamb. 28 references to the lamb in Revelation. 28. Four times seven. And that equals the four references to the seven spirits of God, which is the poetic reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's main function, then, is to give testimony to the Lamb of God. And so we have him at the center of Revelation. We have him at the center of John's Gospel, which we also spent a couple years on, especially in John 19, 30 to 34, where his legs were not broken. He was the Lamb that was slain and where he cried out, or at least spoke out, to tell us die, finished. And so at the heart of all of Paul's epistles, there is a lamb who has been sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and who will reign over all things and who will one day commit all that he has redeemed, which is a creation-wide redemption in all of its times, to God the Father, so that God may be all and in all. And his eternal life will be unrestrictedly participated in by all of creation in all of its times for all of the ages. That's what we're looking forward to, I can only imagine. So in answering the question, what is eternal life, I begin by saying the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The parakletos, or the spirit of truth, Jesus said, convicts the world of sin. He said he will convince or persuade the world of sin because it does not believe in me. Put John one twenty nine together with John 16.9, and you have the story there. The sin of the world, therefore, that the Lamb takes away is the unbelief of the world. Put that together now in your mind because it's very important. The Lamb of God took away that sin so that the rectification of the world or the setting of setting right of all things in all of its times is by the blood of the Lamb in Romans 5, 9. By his blood we have been rectified, justified. How much more then will we be saved from the wrath that this teacher talks about this supposed wrath to come by the life of Christ, being justified by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ, how much more will we be saved from the aforementioned wrath, Romans one eighteen, by his life, meaning by our participation with his livingness. This is another way 
of looking at Romans 11.32, another peak. Romans 8.32, Romans 11.32, two spires or peaks. So this is another way of looking at Romans 11.32, that God consigned all of humanity to the disobedience. The Greek word for that is extremely important because the word disobedience is A-P-E-I-T-H. E-I-A. I'm going to do a little bit of exegesis today. I'm bringing all my weapons to this battle lately, exegetically, theologically, and the nine theological functional specialties. I'm putting them all into play for this one. Apathia. Apathia is a disobedience that arises from, and this isn't in there, but this is a specifically a disobedience that arises from apistia which is unbelief or disbelief, apistia, A-P-I-S-T-I-A, apistia. So God has consigned all humanity in the disobedience that comes from unbelief. Put that together with the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world And then Jesus defines the sin of the world as not believing in me. The Lamb of God took away the sin of not believing in him. Please notice that. So, in order to have mercy upon all. Another reason why I like that song, Mercy Me. All of humanity were consigned by God to disobedience at the cross in the crucified Christ who cried out in their unbelief at the height of his obedience to God. He cried out in identification with the world's unbelief. Why have you forsaken me? At the height of his obedience to the death of the cross, at the height of his obedience, he became sin or the disobedience and unbelief of the world so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him, not by our faith, but by his faithfulness. It's often argued that Jesus Christ did not die for the sin of human unbelief. And we used to bat this around at Bible college. Well, if he died for all the sins of the world, but did he die for unbelief? Now, that's when we believe that you were justified by your belief. So it's often argued still that Christ did not die. He couldn't have died for the human sin of unbelief. But this has to be the case that he did die for the sin of unbelief. If we are saved by human belief and damned by unbelief, then he didn't die for unbelief. If we are damned for our unbelief, then he didn't die for our unbelief. If we are saved by our belief, then he didn't die for our unbelief. But that can't be the case because the sin of the world is actually identified as unbelief by Jesus in John 16, 9. And the sin of the world is exactly what the Lamb of God took away. The root of all sin he took away. The root of all sin is unbelief. And so... This is what we call, theologically speaking, and what we should reverently call expiation. The putting away or the taking away of sin. And this is what Hebrews 9.26b is saying. Hebrews 9.26b. All of these verses are, have profound importance to us at right, right now and for this communion service, and for this time in American history and world history in our individual lives. Hebrews 9.26b is such an enormously significant text 
it says, for but now, and that's a prolonged now, but now, once for all, the word hapax means once without repetition, but it also means once for all. Now, noon in the Greek, once for all, hapax, at the simultaneity of the ages, suntelia. I'm going to have to do this later, not today, because I want to reach this point of answering the question, what is life? At the simultaneity or the juncture of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, Christ has been made manifest. That means this love of God that was always in God, which can only be revealed in a crucified Christ. This love of God was manifested and made noticeable and conspicuous. The word in the perfect tense of phanerao, manifested now to remain conspicuous. How does Jesus Christ remain conspicuous as the one who takes away the sin of the world? By the preaching of the gospel. By doing this right here, right now, by choosing this one needful thing. Because the gospel, which I'm not ashamed of, is the power of God for salvation because in it is revealed the righteousness of God, which speaks of his faithfulness going to Christ's faithfulness, going to our rectification. And so Hebrews 9.26 Now, once for all, at the juncture of the ages, which continues now. The juncture of the ages continues now. We are at the juncture of an evil age and the messianic age. That's why these things, they're running concurrently right now. That's why we see such great conflict in the world, such great stasis and outrage and hatred and anger flying around all over the world today. It's the close of an evil age. And the principalities and powers are crying out in their rage and anger because their time is over. And they are quite unwilling to relinquish their power over the world. So then, There is, in a manner of speaking, two times or two occasions when all times became simultaneous. Two occasions. We're going to celebrate in the communion when those two occasions are. One, when he died. Two, when he comes again. Remember my death, the time when all times became simultaneous, all sins became collected and were judged. And until I come. Also, the last words Jesus spoke in John's gospel, until I come. 1 Corinthians 11, until I come. When he comes, all times will be simultaneous. All time will be redeemed without sin in the mix. Now, that's what I'm going to explain to you. There's two ancient visions of what eternal life was, how to describe eternity in terms of time. Two ancient Lines of thought. One came from Plato, the other came from Boethius. Boethius wrote The Consolation of Philosophy. He, like almost anyone else who brings forth new truths, was jailed for treason in Rome in the 5th century, 4th century AD. But stay tuned for that. So there is, in the manner of speaking, two times, two moments, we could call it. Two occasions when all times become simultaneous. One is the moment which we call, people call it the eschaton. I, pro, I choose rather to call it to, telos, T-O-T-E-L-O-S. Some people pronounce it telos, but I think the epsilon is telos. To telos, T-E-L-O-S, which means the end, the culmination, the termination and that word is found in 1 Corinthians 15:28. Then comes the end when God will be all in all. 
So there's a manner of speaking two times or two occasions when all times become simultaneous. One is the moment called totelos, when God is to be all in all. The other is at the cross, where all of humanity in all of its times was present in all of its sinfulness in the crucified Christ. In order to be present and accounted for in justification in the resurrected Christ. All humanity in all of its times was present in all of its sinfulness in the crucified Christ with the intention that all of humanity in all of its times would be present and accounted for in the resurrected Christ justified. Where did you get this? Romans 4.25 for one, but all the Bible for another, just in case you're interested. So then, there is much more that's wrapped up in the faithful word uttered by Jesus that looks like this in the Greek. T-E-T-E-L, accent here, tatel s tai. Tetelestai. Much more is wrapped up. I must have had an, a transformation just this moment because I just wrote something neatly. It must be a justification. It is finished. Much more is wrapped up in that faithful word, Tetelestai. One word in the Greek takes a phrase in the English, it is or it stands finished. In the Greek, it's simply finished exclamation point, exclamation point. But a lot more is wrapped up in that faithful word than is usually recognized. Now, if the sin of the world's unbelief in Jesus was taken away by Jesus, then how can we say that we're justified by believing or by our personal faith? We cannot. And this brings us back to the dialectic or the argument that Paul is having with his opponent in much of Romans. In fact, 118 to 425, and then again, he picks up the mantle and they start fighting again in Romans 9 and 10, sometimes a little bit into 11. Paul is not arguing against a gospel of justification by works with a gospel of justification by faith. He is rather proclaiming an apocalyptic gospel of the justification of all of humanity by the act of God in Christ and the act of Christ in God against any gospel that requires any human action, reaction, or response at all. And this is where the, the offense of the cross hits home today because Paul teaches, as the whole Bible teaches, salvation is not a matter of human works, but neither is it a matter of human will. We've been studying this in the midweek. See, I'm not just coming in a, from a vacuum. He said to Moses in 9.15 of Romans, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. But we fired an arrow from Romans 9.15 to 11.32 where it says, I will have mercy on all. Is God unjust because he decided to have mercy on all? I don't think so. And then in 9.16, Paul concludes, it is not of him who wills. What is it? Election, which is that central part of salvation. It is not of him who wills, nor of him that runs. It isn't of him that gets in to salvation or him that maintains it by running, but of God who shows mercy. I'll show mercy to whoever I want to show mercy to. Okay, I got it. And I've showed mercy to all. Okay. It's all right with me. It's not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God who shows mercy. See, I hope you see that. I really do hope you see that. There's 40 years of doctrinal teaching that gets behind this that I'm telling you today. Someone said, how long did you take to prep that message? Four decades. 
plus seven years. Between my encounter with the Lord in University of Vermont in the dead of winter in 1972, January 23rd, best of my reckoning, Forty-seven years, let's call it. Coming up. So, Paul isn't arguing against the gospel of justification by works by using the weaponry of a gospel of justification by faith. He's blowing away a gospel of justification by any human action or any human will at all and a gospel by which man is saved by God's faithfulness Demonstrated in Christ's faithfulness to the death of the cross. Now, when I preach that, when I say that gospel, or when you do, guess what sometimes God does? Triggers faith in the listener. Faith is something God gifts us with after he regenerates us so that we can discern the totality of his love. The reason God gives us faith is is so that by faith we can discern or understand, as Hebrews 11.3 says, the totality of his love, the totality of his love, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ that passes knowing by any other perception but faith. I'll be explaining that a little more. So not only... You know, this gospel actually takes the anger right out of a man. It takes the resentment right out of a person. It actually gives someone the opportunity through forgiveness not to be tormented all their life by something done to them in their youth. And certainly, almost everyone here can testify to something that may have been done to them in their past that was traumatic and in some cases I know what I would never disclose horrifying but I have known two kinds of people one the one who has relieved themselves from that trauma through forgiveness of the perpetrator and the one who has held on to the trauma and let their life be defined by it for the rest of their life. And that allows time to be eaten up by sin rather than time to be redeemed by grace. This is the whole missing message today. The message of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. So, in a time like today, you're asked, what side are you on? I'm on nobody's side. I'll tell you what. God has gifted me with the gift of eternal life, but he has not cursed me with the gift of omniscience. And by that I mean... I can, I'll take eternal life, but don't give me all knowledge. It's the Pharisees that judged all the time because they lived in the ethics of the knowledge of good and evil, where Christianity, as Bonhoeffer said, totally demolishes that whole basis for ethics, the knowledge of good and evil, and presents instead love. Now, Paul is proclaiming an apocalyptic gospel of justification of all humanity by the act of God in Christ and of Christ in God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Then why does Paul say be reconciled to God? Because he's saying your happiness depends on you being reconciled to the reconciliation that's already happened. Be reconciled to this that God has reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, their sins to them. Be reconciled to God means that God has already reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their sins to him and to them, but instead he made him who knew no sin to be sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God, Paul said. I urge you. He's talking to believers there in that case. Be reconciled to the reality that there is no reality but the reconciliation in Christ Jesus. In fact, there is no other reality that is more important than the reality that is Jesus Christ as our reconciliation. That's a reality that's only apparent to some today, but it will be a reality that will be apparent to all one day. Thank God. So then, Paul is not arguing against the gospel of justification by works with a gospel of justification by faith, but rather a gospel of the act of God against any act of human beings. Not only are human works removed from the equation, but so is human will. The erasure of the human will from God's election is the subject of Romans 9. Explicitly and succinctly stated in 9.16. So then, it, election, does not depend on a human who wills, nor on a human who runs, but on God who shows mercy. In Romans 11.32, God shows mercy to all of humanity whom he had previously consigned to disobedience rooted in unbelief. So this, too, is a matter of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Jesus Christ, having been crucified and resurrected, all of humanity was shown mercy. So God, who announced to Moses, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, recorded in 9.15 of Romans, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, showed mercy to all through Jesus Christ our Lord who appeared in a moment of the simultaneity of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. And here's our passage in Romans 6, my first reference to it, 23. For the wages of sin, the compensation that sin pays out, we could say, is death, capital D-E-A-T-A. H. Thanatos is the name. The wages of sin is the death that Jesus died. And the gift of God is the life that God gives gratuitously, entirely freely through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 6.23, but stay there. We're going to hover around that verse for a bit. That speaks over to Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any person should boast, not of human works, certainly, but also not of human will. Oh, don't say that. Don't blow up my final arrogant citadel of human will. The doctrine of hell only exists because human will is elevated above God's saving mercy. I'll say that again for you. The doctrine of hell only survives because those who hold it elevate human will, individual human will over God's saving, sovereign will to save and to have mercy upon all. I'd have to ask the question, is the gospel being preached in churches today all over the country? I don't know. So little conclaves of people who call themselves Christian who spend all their time judging ethically everybody else. Is that a Christian church? I don't know. No, it isn't. That's the Pharisee. And the Pharisee cannot be pictured as hook-nosed, lecherous, evil 
sons of Belial. They are the best that humanity has to offer. But faced with Jesus Christ, man in his best estate is only vanity. So, that's Psalm 39.5, the second half, B. Of course, you already knew that. So, salvation, whether speaking of the aspects of justification or rectification or regeneration, is a matter of the divine saving will, a divine saving work, by divine saving power, rooted in passionate divine philanthropy. I'll say that again. That might go in a future systematic theology book written by somebody. Probably not me. Salvation, whether speaking of the aspects of justification slash rectification or regeneration, what we call the new birth, is a matter of the divine saving will, a divine saving work by divine saving power rooted in passionate divine philanthropy, the love of God. For even regeneration, according to John 1.13, is a birth brought about neither by human desire nor by human will. John 1.13. But by God. And in James 1.18, God brought us to birth by his own will. So that we would be a prolepsis or a kind of forecast or first fruits of his universal new creation. What is the new creation? Nothing but the completion of the old creation. Creation in the beginning is not finished except by an act of divine redemption. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant creation was finished. Creation was finished. An ever new creation was finished. Creation in the beginning was only completed by an act of redemption by God. And so his new creation is just riddled with grace, gratuitous grace, unrestricted livingness, freedom, liberty, and the absence of any opposing authority to grace. That's the life we have even now. But then completely, even now, because of what he did in his death and resurrection, but then when he comes completely, completely unrestricted participation in the life of God. Watch how this unfolds now. Creation in the beginning is only finished to Telestai by an act of redemption, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24, which was finished at the cross to be universally manifested in what to us is a future telos or eschaton at the last judgment. That individual regeneration is by the will and power of God without creaturely cooperation. What did you do when you emerged from your mother's womb? Say, I'm cooperating. No, you just came out and basically wailed. And most of the life is spent wailing. How'd I end up in this place? Well, you ended up in this evil age just so God could redeem you from it and bring you into a creation, new creation that will boggle your mind for eternity. So you can't even imagine. Or you can, but you can't. Individual regeneration, Titus 3.5, by the will and the power of God, without creaturely cooperation or permission, is significant inasmuch as Jesus spoke of the same word, palingenesia, new creation, or again creation in Matthew 19, 28, as a universal occurrence, a regeneration of all of creation in all of its times, of all of humanity, all the angelic realm, which are also affected profoundly and redemptively by the saving work of Christ. All creation. The regeneration is the same, polygenesia, as the universal apokatastasis, Acts 3.21, which is also the same as the anakephaliosis of Ephesians 1.10, when all things are salvifically, savingly summed up in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.10. Hold on to that verse. 
home in on that verse. That verse is one of the most significant verses in all of the Bible. Individually, then, God calls or regenerates us. He calls us into being as a new creation. God calls things into being that didn't exist before. That's your salvation. How can you say that your salvation is a response of your, you to God, the response of your old self to God? It is not. God ignores the old self, doesn't even recognize the old self, so he doesn't even recognize the old self's faith or prayers or good works. He brings us into being, calls us into being as something we weren't before, a new creation. Then with the new creation, he liberates our will to the degree that we can actually obey his mandates under the power of the Spirit. So, Titus 3, 5, and 6, it is not according to the deeds of rectitude that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the bath of regeneration accomplished by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out generously on us as part of his promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's expansion of Titus 3, 5, and 6. 3, 7, Titus, Paul adds significantly, so that being justified by his grace, says nothing of faith, being justified by his grace, you would become heirs of eternal life, and that means gifted with the hope or the expectation of that life that we have being fully realized in bodily resurrection. God makes us heirs of eternal life, and then he gifts us with faith. And faith, by definition, is the assurance of the hoped-for eternal life in an incorruptible and immortal human body of glory. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is not the means of salvation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, by definition, in the Bible, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And through faith we understand. That means in Hebrews 11.3, for example, that the worlds are made or the ages have been programmed by that which we don't see, the divine decrees, etc., divine power. We don't see it, but that was the creation power. So subsequent to regeneration, which God does just because he does it, God gifts us with faith, which is the means of discerning the totality of his love. Regeneration brings us into a participation in the life of God. I'm going to go to phase two, and then we're going to have the faithful ushers take you to the elements and celebrate this by the dramatic presentation of the Eucharist. Regeneration, the new birth, brings us into a participation of the life of God. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, because we are all living to him. All are living to him. Jesus said that in Luke 20, 38. Argue with him if you have a problem with it. This is how Jesus interpreted Yahweh's self-identification to Moses as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus interpreted God saying, I am, of I, I am the God of Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. After they were dead and buried, Jesus interpreted that as the patriarchs being men who still lived, though they had died and were buried. Now, here's where the second phase and the last phase of the message comes. There are two temporal concepts. How do you define eternity in terms of time? In ancient philosophy, one developed out of Plato, who lived circa around 427 to 347 B.C. One developed from the Roman philosopher, about 800 years later, Boethius, that's B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S, Boethius. He should be more famous than Plato because of this, I think. He wrote the famous work, The Consolation of Philosophy. Now, Jürgen Moltmann wrote this about this idea. If we follow Plato, we experience time as a moved sequence of fleeting and irrecoverable moments in life. That is life as chronos. Now he moves over into Greek, philosophy, Greek mythology, 
which is a way of expressing Greek philosophy in some cases. Kronos, Kronos was the famous god, so was Thanatos. Thanatos is the word for death, which Paul said is the last enemy that is to be annihilated in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. John apocalyptically portrays this as death being cast into the lake of fire, death, Thanatos being annihilated. Kronos means time. He had a brother in mythology named Thanatos. Kronos and Thanatos. In other words, wherever there was time, there was death. The brother of Kronos. So he, Moltmann is right. Life as Kronos is a sequence of fleeting and irrecoverable moments in life because his brother is Thanatos. Moltmann went on to explain that in the ancient Greek understanding, Kronos, or time, was the brother of Thanatos, or death, and therefore transitory time is merely the time of death. It's everywhere where time is, there's death. I've been very impacted by this truth by being to about three or four hundred funerals and presiding in probably 300 of them. And as an altar boy in the Catholic Church, I got a dollar for every funeral I attended as an altar boy. Made a lot of money back then. Dollar a funeral. You could be sure of one thing. You could still make a dollar on any given month or two. Because people kept dying. Get it? Never mind. So the children, here's another thing. Kronos was famous because he did something terrible. He ate his children. He was famous for eating his children. There's a philosophy in our country today that wants to eat the children and damn you if you stand in the way. Because the concept goes back to Plato, that time is just a series of irrecoverable moments. Bible doesn't teach that. Bible talks about doing something called redeeming the time. And God redeems time. God redeems history. God will actually redeem all of your time without sin involved in the mix. So your life will have been well worth living from birth on. He does this in the last judgment. The children of Kronos are the irrecoverable moments of time. Moments that we can never get back, according to Plato. Plato. Kronos ate those moments. On the other hand, Boethius' temporal concept of eternity was expressed by the Latin saying, Eternitus est interminabilis vitae tota simul et perfecta possessio terribly butchered pronunciation of what in English says eternity is the unlimited whole simultaneous and perfect possession or enjoyment of life do you like Boethius or Plato I like Boethius the Boethian concept in fact was adopted from theologians from Thomas Aquinas to Karl Barth. Augustine just threw up his arms and said, let's not think of time at all. Let's just think of eternity as the opposite of time. And therefore, God is not a living God capable of human relationships or suffering or passion. He's up. That's that whole thing of, and then death is RIP, rest in peace. Because God is at this perfect, impassable rest. He's up there above everything. He's incapable of suffering. He's incapable of relationships because he's in an eternity that is the opposite of time. That's Augustine. Augustine lived before he could get a hold of Boethius's concept of eternity, which I think is closer to Jesus Christ. Moltmann again, and this is where I'm going to wind it up really quickly. Moltmann again said, applied to God, God's eternity then means God's unrestricted and perfect livingness and his inexhaustible creative fullness of life applied to human beings 
Eternal life means unrestricted livingness. Perfect fullness of life in unrestricted participation in the life of God. What is life? That is life. When eternity is associated with life, rather than mere timelessness, we are able to understand eternal life as a gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ as unrestricted participation and enjoyment of the livingness of God. In Ephesians 3:18 to 19, Paul put it this way: When people grasp the totality of the love of Christ, they become filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3:19. Don't they? Filled with all the fullness of God. Which means the experience of unrestricted participation in the life of God even now. In the midst of an evil age, even now, while we still retain bodies subject to mortality and corruption, even now, in some meaningful measure, we have this. How much more then when he comes and we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? So this is also known as Romans 8.21, the glorious freedom of the children of God. Glorious freedom of the children of God. God is not like Kronos. Listen carefully. God is not like the God Kronos in Greek mythology who eats his children. God eats the sin of his children. By taking it into himself. And enduring it until it is extinguished utterly and annihilated. You talk about falling on a grenade. For he who knew no sin became sin, was made to be sin. All the moments of our life, therefore, are not irrecoverable. It's Plato that makes people say, well, we can't get that moment back again. Can't get that opportunity back again. Who said? Plato said that. Boethius says you can and that you will. And I'll explain this one more, th- one more increment here. All the moments of our life are not irrecoverable, but are rather restored without sin in the restoration of all things. So you can, your whole life that you've lived up to this moment is recovered without sin because of the way God views your life. Once and for all, the simultaneity of the ages, the simultaneity of the ages, when the ages intersected, which is at the cross, and which is also now, the crucifixion of Christ is still apparent and noticeable and obvious now only where the gospel is preached. Otherwise, human ethics is at the forefront. What you do right and what you do wrong and how we judge people who aren't doing what we think is right or are doing what we think is wrong. That's not Christianity. That's eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which people can only apply in terms of critical judgment. But God only has the tree of life. And that's the tree I want to eat the fruit of. So, that's why Paul said, don't judge anything till the time comes when the Lord will judge all these things and he'll judge them with mercy. So someone will say, what's your judgment on the things that happened this week? I don't have one. I withhold. Therefore, I'm a happier man than you are because you didn't withhold your judgment. You knew based on your omniscience who was telling the truth or both are telling the truth or who's telling the truth or someone conjured up a memory under hypnosis or someone didn't, someone really remembered, someone's wrong, we shouldn't do this. We should. All this stuff is human, is eating the fruit, gorging on the fruit, gorging on the fruit, gorging on it of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. With the assumption 
of omniscience. God blessed me with the gift of eternal life. He didn't curse me with human omniscience. So if I had human omniscience, God's quality of omniscience, I'd be judging people all day long and being judged for my judgment and increasing my own human misery. So the righteous man studies to answer. That means he holds back when he's asked an opinion on something, which means for me, I don't know. So, all you can do is have compassion on whom you will have compassion. You say, who would that be for? Everybody. Everybody. I'll have compassion on whomever I want to have compassion for. Well, if you have compassion on her, that's going to make us mad. If you have compassion on him, that's going to make us mad. I'll have compassion on both and damn you both. You can get mad at me all, all day long on both sides. Go ahead. I love wearing a gray coat and blue pants right in the middle of the Civil War. Because I keep getting shot by both sides, and God keeps healing the wounds. So in closing, consider Romans 6.23 then. Ta gar opsonia, tes hamartias thanatos, to de charisma, tu theu, en Christu Jesu, zoe eonios. That means the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's life. That means, if you notice in Romans 6.23, and I'll have to do this a little more in detail later, wages, apsonia, is counterbalanced with charisma, gift. And gift not only counterbalances, but cancels apsonia. Tes hamartias, sin, the wages of sin, sin, tes hamartia, is counterbalanced by tu theu, God, who not only counterbalances sin, but cancels sin. And eternal life, the gift of God, counterbalances the wages paid out by sin by canceling the wages paid by sin. Eternal life is God's gift through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, eternal life is the life that is to be lived in the coming age. That age has already come, however, in Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised to life. But eternal life is much more. It is participation in God's own life in Christo, in Christo, in Christ Jesus, who embodies all of humanity and all of creation in his incarnate self, and in whom all the fullness of divinity lives bodily. So he embodies all the fullness of divinity in Colossians 2.9, all the fullness of all creation and all of its times in the flesh, and therefore you are complete in him. In Colossians 2.10, eternal life is possessed and enjoyed even now, though then, when he comes, at the telos and ever after, it will be possessed and enjoyed without the restrictions imposed by corruption and... Mortality. The experience of this participated livingness, we're going into communion on this wave, on this thought. The experience of this participated livingness begins even in this time in which Thanatos is everywhere where Kronos is. As the evil age winds down to a close. This life that we participate with God in begins with the divine act of regeneration of the individual, which is a prolepsis of the regeneration of all things, including all the moments of time, chronos, which God redeems with all of humanity and all of creation. So I opened with this. I'll close with it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world takes sin right out of history as he takes death right out of time. The Lamb of God, who is the central character of John and Rev the book, 
is also the central character of Hebrews because it says for those who look for him or expect him, whether they know it or not, when people are longing, they're longing for the coming of Christ. They just don't know it. You may long for the coming of Christ and you know it's the coming of Christ that you long for. But everybody in all of creation, even mindless creation, groans in expectation. It doesn't know what it's for, but it's for the coming of Christ. When he comes, he will come again without sin, says Hebrews 9.28. Unto salvation. So the Lamb of God is also at the heart of Hebrews. How much more shall the blood of the Lamb, Christ, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living, living, living God? Thank you, Father, that the Lamb is the central character of Romans, of Revelation, of John, of Hebrews, of your book, the Bible. And may we have this awareness as we proceed to celebrate the Lamb of God who took away our sin and who will come again to express the universal mercy that was already expressed at Calvary's cross. Please follow the lead of our capable ushers to the elements. All are welcome to participate in this communion, to celebrate your union with Christ and your participation with his life rooted in his death. So, All are welcome. Nobody's obligated. How much more meaningful to us now is this Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving? This church has been my prayer that this assembly would be like the tenth of the ten lepers, the one that turned around and came back just to say thank you. And that's what this is. The communion service, we call it, is we who have been cleansed, of our sin, turning around to say thank you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me, fond recollection. This isn't some religious thing. This is a a fond recollection, an affectionate recall of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then a profound appreciation. He said, remember my death until I come. How much more meaningful now is this service to us than before, maybe, when we were younger, when when I was a child, when I was told I had to do it, or else I'd have a mortal sin on my soul or something, or some other kind of threat, and it took away all the joy of it. But, And I'm not demeaning at that time in my life either, but How much more meaningful is it now that we know that we are at the juncture of the ages, that we are in the evil age, but the night is far spent, that night is far spent, it's almost over, that the new light, the light is shining already with the resurrection of Jesus Christ already. And how much more now that we know that in the juncture of the ages, we are at a place where We are most privileged in the future after the coming of Christ and before the coming of Christ. There is not this privilege for us to look back at the death of Jesus Christ and look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. At his death, the mercy of God was shown to all humanity or had upon all humanity. In his coming, that mercy will be demonstrated demonstrably for all to see. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Those who pierced him is all of us. And we will appreciate it so much that in exchange for our sin, he loved us, forgave us, All the stuff that makes life so agitated and anxious and reactionary and angry and hateful and spiteful and all that stuff gone when he comes. But even now we have this life. That's what we celebrate today. We eat this bread in memory of him, which is his body, 
his incarnate self in which he has received the sin of the world and extinguished it in his incomprehensible death. The fruit of the vine that we drink celebrates the blood by which we are justified, the blood of a new covenant, he said, a new covenant whereby God promises, I will write upon your hearts my laws so that you will do them and be caused to walk in them, and I will put my spirit in you, and you will fulfill my ordinances. But all those ordinances add up to one thing. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember my death until I come. And that night, he took the bread and gave thanks for it. That's why we call it Eucharist. You carries grace. And he broke the bread and he gave thanks and ate it. Let's eat the bread. In the same night in which he was betrayed, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. Drink it, all of you. And that night, at the institution of this wonderful celebration, right in the midst of the Passover, they closed with a hymn, which is a celebration, a song of thanksgiving. We're going to do that too. That's our basically our custom and our tradition. So, You're dismissed, and you can exit as we sing, and please dispose of the cups.